0: Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumey, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception and acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Well, hello everyone and welcome to the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. On today's episode, I have Rob Webb from Just Love Coffee Cafe. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Rob, tell us a little bit about Just Love Coffee. You guys have quite the mission.
1: Yeah, so uh, I started it in 2009, at uh, kind of the middle of my adoption process with two of my daughters who uh, adopted from Ethiopia. And I just saw that there was a real need for adoptive families to be raising money to, you know, subsidize the costs of adoptions. And I always wanted to get into coffee roasting. And so I created this business model where uh, adoptive families could sign up and you know, create their own URL on the JustLoveCoffee.com website, and they could push that URL out to their supporters, and they would receive five dollars a bag for every bag of coffee that was sold through their unique URL. I
0: don't know if you've heard of the E Myth by Michael Gerber, but Michael talks about the this entrepreneurial seizure that we all go through as entrepreneurs, right? It's that it's that point in time where we say. I've got to start this business. Tell me about your entrepreneurial seizure though, on what made you kind of marry these two things together?
1: Well, I grew up in the coffee business. My dad uh, owned a B2B coffee business where he would service offices, restaurants, and the and, and the like uh, with, with coffee and allied products. And so I really wanted to get into the creative side. I was actually an audio engineer uh, in Nashville for seven years prior to me getting into the coffee business. And so when I decided to leave, I went on to the family business. I really wanted to get into roasting, but the roasting aspect of the office coffee just did not work. It's a penny's business. And I really wanted to get more into the craft side of the coffee. So I already had this passion to roast coffee. I just didn't know how that was going to manifest itself. And so when we went through the adoption process, I uh, came up with this idea and there was no hesitation. I mean, I was I was full speed ahead. I, I made out my business model. I found a, a web programmer to program the backend, and I was full steam ahead.
0: Wow, Rob, you're such an inspiration because oh, for so many reasons. But the first thing that comes to my mind is there is so many entrepreneurs out there that are afraid to get into a business where it's such a competitive landscape. Sure. How many people told you, Rob, you're crazy? You're getting in the coffee business.
1: Well, it it wasn't so much that it was cra- I was crazy for getting in the coffee business, it was I was crazy for giving so much money away <laughs> while getting into the coffee business. How are you going to make a profit by giving $5 of a, you know, $13 bag? But, you know, I did I did my math, I did my homework. I wanted to give as much as I could and still break even. And, you know, we were able to do that in the first year. So I, I knew the model worked after after the first year. Things just kind of unfolded. And I kind of fell backwards into the coffee shop model.
0: So tell me, how did that start? How did that happen?
1: So I rented a little 800 square foot space for uh, my original uh, roasting facility. And it was me and a college buddy of mine who had been roasting coffee in a popcorn popper at his home for the last 10 years. So... He was a child counselor. He got burnt out. So he had this heart for kids, but he also had this knowledge of coffee. And so I brought him on uh, in a panic after the first day because I had so many orders. I was not going to be able to fulfill them myself. And so I told him I had enough money to pay him through the end of the week. Uh, Could you just come and help me? And so he did. Uh, you know, the running joke is, you know, like 14 years later, I tell I still tell him I have enough money to pay him to the end of the week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's still he's still with me He's my roast master. But uh, the way it fell into the coffee shop models, we outgrew that 800 square foot space. And so I moved into a 2400 square foot space, but it was in an industrial area. It was not retail. Mm-hmm. But word got around that, uh, you know, in this little small town of Murfreesboro, just outside of Nashville, you know, population, probably 100000. Uh, There was this little company that was roasting specialty coffee. And so people would walk in the front door and not just buy beans, but ask if there were cups of coffee they could buy. Could I get a cup of coffee? Could I get a latte? Mm -hmm. And so six months after moving into that larger facility, I was like, you know what, we should just open up a coffee shop here. I, I really don't need the revenue. So Uh, to sustain the business. So I'll just hire one barista. I built a coffee bar around the roaster Mm -hmm. and put up a chalkboard menu Opened with no fanfare. It was November of 2011. And it just kind of went from there. It was kind of an organic growth.
0: Wow. And did you start with an online presence as well at the around the same time?
1: Yeah. I mean, the whole business model was online exclusively before I opened up that coffee shop so we were selling coffee all over the us through e-commerce when the opportunity presented itself for me to start the coffee shop i thought well that's a good addition we'll just do that (sighs) i didn't think anything of it and it just took off Like people really loved it and um i it was coffee only and no food i'm i may i think i had maybe some muffins and Mm -hmm. uh a, a few grab and go items but Yeah, it was just a simple little mom-and-pop coffee shop uh, with no marketing. It was literally just opened the doors, and it was word of mouth.
0: And look at you now. You've been franchising since 2018. Right. You have 42 open locations with, like, another 40 in development. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. How how did you do it?
1: So um, I I was approached by a couple of brothers that uh, owned a – Food distribution company that the family business was uh, a customer of. Well, they sold their business, and they reached out to me and they said, "Rob, man, we've been to your coffee shop, man. We we really think we'd like to open something like that in Rome, Georgia. You know, would you be would you be able to sit down and talk to us about franchising?" So I thought, eh, okay. So I sat down with them. We talked. I left the meeting and I started reading. And I started reading as much as I could on franchising, and I made a very quick decision that I was not going to get into franchising. There was, it was too complicated. It was extremely expensive. There's a lot of legal involved in it and I was just not prepared to do that. So I turned them down. Well, fast forward a year and the shop just got busier and busier and busier. And I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I do have something here and maybe it's replicatable. Mm -hmm. So I called my financial advisor and I said, do you have anybody on your client roster that knows franchising? So he caught he got, gave me a call back pretty quickly and said, yeah, there, I have a, a client. His name's Alan Thompson. He's grown this concept from one store to, I think at the time about 75, he, he's willing to meet with you. And um, so I said, great. So I met with Alan. It was just a discovery meeting. I was just trying to get information. And Alan said, look, you've got a franchisable model. The, the question is, um, you know, do you hire a consultant? like me to walk you through the process or do you partner with someone like me and have somebody with a vested interest in the company? I a, you know, I, I said it was a no brainer. I would want to partner. And so I left that meeting. I was like, okay. Um, I kind of, I, I kind of have validation that I did have something that was franchisable, uh, but I needed to find that person. Well, Alan and I kept in touch. And I really don't remember how it all unfolded, but about, Four or five months later, we partnered together. Uh, I remember our first meeting at my shop. He, he, you know, it's very difficult to find this original shop. Like I said, it's not a retail location. It's it's behind a building on a side street facing a city fence. And so uh, he walked in and he said, how in the world are you doing the business you're doing in this location? And he said, you know, if we were on Main Street, you know, we would kill it. Right. And so we we partnered and we decided that we needed at least one prototype store, you know, from the ground up, if not two. Smart. And so we found two locations, one in downtown Nashville and one just south of Nashville um, in a city <laughs> called Brentwood. Uh, unfortunately, those both opened within weeks of each other. <laughs> I mean, you know, it would have been nice to have one built, had a few months, and then have the other one open. But um, you know, you, any anyone who has gone through the process of opening a retail location or the franchise process, the timeline just kind of is the timeline. That's and it. You, you have some control, but very little. And so, um, yeah, we opened those two stores, and man, we didn't know what we were doing. Like. I had no idea uh, what it was going to be like opening a, sh- a shop from the ground up uh, in a new market where no one knew who you were. And so uh, I'm going to back up just a little bit um, sure. but before we decided to um, build the prototype stores. Alan told me, Rob, you really need a food program. And so he said, you know, I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out what that is. I was like, well, great. I have no experience in the restaurant business. I've never (laughs) worked in a restaurant, I've never worked in a kitchen. So I got together with my marketing director and a salesman from the family business. And I said, okay, guys, we've got to figure out the food. And so I just opened up Google Images and started just, you know, researching (laughs) food, restaurant food. And it needed to be something simple because A, I had no experience. We were all neophytes in this. Right. And B, I, I needed it to be uh cost effective uh from the construction and from the process of um you know cooking the food. Uh basically, I needed to be able to walk into that kitchen and be able to prepare the food myself. So we got together and I said, Hey guys, what if we did waffles? I mean, I can cook a waffle, right? Like, no, we don't want to be like you know, a uh, uh, hotel breakfast kind oh. of thing. <laughs>
0: Hampton you know and I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and I was like, okay, fair enough. And so I started thinking about it and I said, guys, okay, I'm not talking about putting a waffle irons out on the front of house floor. <laughs> right. Um, w- you know, a waffle iron is pretty much a panini press. True. I said, what, what, what all could we cook? In these waffle irons. And so we started coming up with these crazy ideas, um, a lot of bad ideas, but we whittled those down to some pretty decent ideas. Mm-hmm. So we started with cinnamon rolls and then we went to uh, an omelet, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like breakfast burritos, a sausage, egg, and cheese biscuits, uh, something we call a bacon tater, where you just throw like 36 tots on the iron and throw cheese and bacon on it and cook it and it molds into this crispy <laughs> potato cake. Um, And so we came up with the initial menu. Um, The problem was we were cooking uh, protein on a waffle iron that is built to cook batter. And so, you know, we had the issue of grease buildup and, Mm. and, you know, cross contaminants from one one food item to the next. And so I ordered waffle irons. I probably ordered $8,000 of waffle irons for each store. And, you know, they, they worked pretty well mm-hmm. doing one at a time. Well, I had the big idea that I'm going to blow up this uh, grand opening at our first pilot store. So I advertised one free entree. I show up at six in the morning. There's a line down the street. Oh, my goodness. People were waiting for like an hour. Hour for their food, like we did not have the systems and processes to hand handle the kind of volume that I was trying to get. And how do they know about this, first of all, that you had this line down the block? I street team, I just kind of guerrilla marketed. I, I had sent a street team out with flyers to all the businesses and posted on social media and you know, I, I knew how to get the business. I didn't know how to serve the business. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, we, um, we got done with that day and you know, the irons were sticking. I definitely had the wrong kind of irons. So we had to work through a lot of things. It took us two years before we started franchising, actually really three years. Cause that was May of 2015. And it, it took us two, three years to really get not only the systems and processes down, but mm-hmm. the right equipment and to get the construction costs down to something that was saleable. You know, those were the kind of issues I was going through before we even opened up the door for people to buy in.
0: Rob, you're such an inspiration. Uh, Just from an entrepreneur standpoint, have you ever let fear ever get in the way of you?
1: Oh, man, I I, there were times I was like on the edge of the cliff. I'm like, this is not going to work. We Mm -hmm. just need to cut our losses. And one of my partners, Kevin Bowerly, he is the one with no fear. He is the one that said, "Rob, we have the we have the concept. Now we have the systems. We just need to figure out how to operate it properly you know, just hang in there. This is going to work. And so he talked me off the ledge a couple times. And, uh, yeah, I have definitely had let fear, uh, put me in the corner in the fetal position, but, um, you just have to power through it and believe in the, and believe in what you're doing. Um, you know, I have had former concepts as an entrepreneur that I knew just weren't going to work and I cut my losses, Mm -hmm. but this one was different. And so we just powered through and worked Worked the problems um, until we you, we had something that was fluid and uh, something that was capable of handling the customer. What
0: do you think really made this different, though, than some of the other concepts that you thought gone through in your?
1: Well, in past? number one, um, you know, it's a benevolent concept, so there there is the giving back aspect of the business. Number two, we were small batch roasting our coffee. You know, it, we weren't buying from some big roaster. Uh, we had control of the beans and the type of roast <laughs> profiles that we were gonna roast. And and I felt like um, we were a really good bridge between the highbrow coffee market and the mass market coffee concepts. So uh, in other words, you could come in and get a really sweet drink. You could get a frappe, you know, you could get something super sugary but you could also get a single orange hand pour coffee that was brewed right in front of you. Um, so that really made us stand out from the coffee uh, market. And then in addition to that, we had this really unique food program, you know, everything was cooked to order. It was hot when you got it, it was shaped like a waffle regardless of whether it had waffle batter in it or not. Mm-hmm. It, it did take a little bit of explanation when serving the, the food at first because, Someone would order sausage, egg and cheese biscuit and we bring it out on a plate and it literally looks like a waffle, but it is biscuit dough and sausage and egg and cheese. And then they would, you know, customer would say, oh, I'm sorry. I I ordered a sausage, egg and cheese biscuit. (laughs) That's what this is. Don't let your eyes deceive you. It's delicious. Just take a bite and you'll, you'll taste the sausage, egg and cheese biscuit. So that we did have, we did have to overcome some of that.
0: And, and you did. And then, so now you become a franchisor. So what was life like as now being a franchisor and no longer just having, you know, one or two coffee shops yourself?
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of pressure, um, because you know, you're bringing in people who love your concept and are willing to, uh, invest, you know, a considerable amount of money into what you have created and what you're building. And so it was very important to me that we had a, a, a very um, robust process to make sure we were finding not only the people that um, could withstand, you know, your your typical first few months losses, but number two, who fit the culture. We are a culture centered business. We had to find people, that we're gonna be an extension of our core values, which is be genuine, be excellent, be a catalyst for love. Mm. So the vetting process has less to do with financials, which it does have something to do with that, of course. Sure. But more importantly to me, it was a culture aspect of it. You know, are, are, are these owners going to be able to serve the customers with genuineness and, you know, with kindness and and with love. And so, you know, I've turned away some pretty good opportunities, um, some, you know, five, ten pack deals that financially worked on paper. They, they were great. Mm-hmm. They didn't fit the culture. And so I passed. So, you know, where we could have blown up and built hundreds of units as fast as we could, is more important to me to find the right people.
0: I mean, culturally, you're going to succeed or fail based on those people that are your first franchisees, right? We know that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to give the franchisees all the tools that they need to be successful, but I can't make them successful. So, you know, it's our responsibility as a franchise company to give them the tools to be successful. And it's their responsibility to use those tools and and make that shop successful.
0: Absolutely. Did you open regionally?
1: We started locally. Um, we had three stores in the Murfreesboro area where the original shop mm-hmm. is. And then we had two in the Nashville area. And then number, I believe number six was um, outside of Detroit, Michigan.
0: Okay. And now you're in like 17 States, I think, right. I mentioned
1: earlier, right. How
0: did you find your first say 10 franchises?
1: I would say the first two or three out of four were organic. It Mm -hmm. was people people that knew the brand. They were local. They knew we were franchising and they wanted to be a part of it. You know, the other, the other, uh, early on the other 20 25% were um you know from lead generation uh, us doing advertising online mm-hmm. using brokers to get the get the message out that hey this is a new concept and this is what they're about and this is their product line and you know trying to find people that were a good fit so um you know we we were we were going at a a mm-hmm. pretty healthy clip there up, up until covid and then covid hit you know, cause we just started franchising in 2018, and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then 2020, it just came to a screeching halt. You know, we were opening stores from the agreements that we made the prior two years, but we were not, we, we intentionally turned off all the advertising in 2020. So we may have sold one or two in 2020. Mm-hmm. So we were opening stores in 2020, but we weren't selling anything new. So in 21, we weren't opening very many stores. We were selling stores, mm-hmm. you know, and to all of our franchisees credit, everybody made it through all that. They are like family. They're a part of the family. And, you know, fran- the franchisee franchisor relationship can be an, uh, uh, a tough one. It, it, it can be confusing at times. And the reason I say that is because, you know, as a franchisee, you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're an owner the difference is is that you're playing inside a boundary of parameters that you have to kind of abide by uh, and i want to be able to give the franchisees as much flexibility as i can but still this is a brand and there has to be cohesiveness between between stores mm-hmm. you know when you have someone with an entrepreneurial mindset and they have some restrictions it can be tough because I, I, you know, I want entrepreneurs, but I want entrepreneurs that can work within a system. So it can be tough sometimes, sure. you know, because I can totally relate to not having 100% freedom to do whatever I want in my store. Because I understand that we do give all of our franchisees the liberty of having four local items of food on their menu you know we're a coffee shop so i want there to be uh, a level of locality to the shops and you know what southern fair just does not work everywhere Mm -hmm. you know so a, a good example of that of that is um i have a couple who are just wonderful franchisees in georgetown texas they were i think number store number seven and They came to me and said, Rob, like, we love your food, but if we don't have breakfast tacos, nobody's going to come. Like breakfast tacos are everywhere, uh, just outside of Austin. I said, okay, well, um, help me figure that out. And so they came up with the breakfast taco and it sold like crazy there. And it sold so well that we started offering the breakfast taco at other stores outside of the Texas region. So it, it does give us an advantage that we do give the franchisees some freedom and flexibility um, to make the store their own. And, and it goes beyond the food and the coffee, having some local items. We have the story of the owners on the wall. We allow them to put um, local um, artwork on the wall. So we have um, a lazy Susan. It's what we serve our drinks on at the bar and every lazy Susan is custom by the franchisee in conjunction with our marketing team so i'll use the georgetown store as another example um you know they have a I believe it's a canon and it say, says come and take it mm-hmm. because that's the you know it's the texas slogan i guess um and so they worked with our marketing team to do that i personally i my lazy susan is a vinyl record and um the names of all the songs are coffee related song names because I was in the music business prior. So what makes our franchise concept a little unique is that we do give the franchisee freedom to make it their own as well.
0: But isn't that the beauty of your, the the coffee, just the coffee business, it lends itself to having that local flair, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. I just, I didn't I'm not going to name any mass mass market competitors, but you know, the ones that I'd be referring to. And I just didn't want it to be sterile. Sure, I didn't want it to be exactly the same everywhere you went. So, you know, if I go to Arizona to adjust love, it's going to feel like this store was built by someone local to to Phoenix. You know, if I go to Orlando or Tampa, it's going to have. Orlando and Tampa player to it. Right. So, I
0: mean, you had to achieve this very delicate balance of being in franchising yet giving the, you know, the guardrail, so to speak, of that the franchisees need to stay within. And, you know, a lot of franchise concepts would not have been able to pull that off.
1: Yeah. And it does come with its own problems because, you know, being able to say, look, the limit is four and, and, and you do still need to um, submit your recipe and your costs and, and and the price that you want to sell it for so that we can at least be on the same page and work together with this. Um, you know, of course we don't control the pricing at any of the stores, but we also want to consult with our owners to make sure they're profitable. You know, the franchisees, I think now, um, w- when you have freedom in the franchise system, communication becomes even more important. Uh,
0: it does. It, it,
1: yeah because it's not like there's a checklist of a hundred things that you have to abide by and there's no wiggle room so Mm -hmm. it's black and white so when when you do give freedom of creativity and and recipes then there has to be really healthy communication
0: so let's talk about that support that you had to provide so i'm going to imagine that your support for your franchisees looks a little bit different than some other models
1: I you know I don't know I I don't I only know my model uh I know the support that that we do give I do know that you know as a franchise company we front load our staff for the next 25 units so we are always um overstaffed up until we get to that next benchmark uh to make sure that we are supporting the franchisees the way we need to when you get from 10 stores to 25 stores that that's a huge difference you know you're more than doubling your system go from 25 to 40 again it's 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 a big jump so yeah the support system i i'm not going to lie we we have ebbed and flowed uh, as a franchise company with the level of communication uh we have not been perfect um we uh are constantly uh you know addressing and assessing our support to the franchisees and every franchisee is different you know mm-hmm. some franchisees just love to be left alone and if their sales are healthy and they're doing their thing then you know they don't want to be bugged every week sure. or every week and then there are some that just just like with personalities there's just some that require a little more um care and finesse and and you know getting them through some uh answers to questions that they may not have and so you know we have we just had last week a company-wide zoom meeting so you know we had like 60 people on zooms and um just going over, look, this is where the company's at. This is where we're headed. This is where we failed you. This is where we're going to make those corrections. Mm-hmm. Just like with any company, you're not going to get it 100% right. And and it's really important to me that we own up to where we do fall short and to let them know this is our plan of attack and this is this is the action we're going to take. And then the next meeting, we're going to go back and say, okay, this is what we said we were going to do. Did we do it?
0: Right. At the end of the day, people just want to know that you care, right? And that you're listening exactly. and you're trying.
1: Exactly. It's the it's the you know, the situation where someone emails you and you don't get back to them for a number of days, mm-hmm. you know, that number of days is a fire blazing. People want to have some kind of communication if it nothing more than I don't have the answer right now, please give me 24 hours. That is what we expect of our team, that we're constantly responding to um correspondence from our franchisees but also being proactive in us reaching out to them and we do this through um zoom meetings phone calls um insight visits on-site visits and um uh you know we we did an internal podcast for about a year and people I think people loved it and then we just got super busy and you know how on the ball you have to be to run a podcast i mean you have to have episodes upon episodes recorded before the drop date and so we're getting back to doing that it's just you know that's one of the things that we let the ball drop on so but but um we have a great home office team and um, they're getting communication from eight to ten different people depending on what Phase of the of the franchise build you're, you're at. You know, you could you could be in the build process. You could have been open for three months. You could have been open for five years. The further along that the franchisee is, the less communication I think that is necessary, and they want because they're like, "Look, I know what I'm doing. Let me do my thing." Right. Early on, you know, they I, I feel like the majority of them want that regular communication. And, you know, do we need to come back for a site visit? You know, do you, do you feel like you need maybe another couple of days of training?
0: How did you know when, as just love was growing that you could scale more quickly? Cause you kind of, you really took off and now you're, you're essentially double the number of units in development than you've opened right now. Right. So was there a trigger right. for you, Rob? And you're like, all right, we can really, we can accelerate this growth.
1: Honestly, I think it wasn't until like the last few months that I felt like, OK, we dial it up, dial it up now. Um There we had a little bit of identity crisis in the early, early years. Um, Tell me about that. Well, as a coffee enthusiast, I was naturally drawn to this highbrow coffee experience. So the latest equipment, the craft, brewing it, you know, brewing the coffee one cup at a time in front of you. All of our ready to drink tapped coffee was all French press. I hired baristas who were great baristas, but didn't really fit the culture that well. And what I found was I was really capturing a real, you know, a, a narrow market. You know, not every, well, not everybody. I mean, the, the minority of people want that craft experience. I finally made the decision that look, I did a I did a market analysis. And I said, look, we've got all these highbrow shops that are maybe one or two shops in a market. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got units going from, you know, like a thousand to tens of thousands. And I couldn't find anything in the middle. And so I was like, there's this big opportunity in the middle of the market. So I said, why can't we offer uh, a highbrow experience to those that want it and kind of a mass marketed experience to the majority of the customer base. And so we intentionally did that. Um, For instance, we'll do a buy the cup hand brew in a V60 uh, brew, you know, brew basket and put it on a cherry and, you know, give you your little, little scone bite with it. And, you know, it costs you six bucks. Um, And then we have your $2 drip coffee. Um, We have traditional cappuccinos, which are six ounces. And then we have 20 ounce lattes, you know, that is by definition, not a latte, but that's just what um, everybody is accustomed to. On the coffee roasting side, we have, your traditional whole bean, 12 ounce bags. Um, But we also have fractional packs for offices. We also have um, single serve cups for your Keurig machines. And that's just not something a specialty coffee roaster does. They they think in general that it uh, jeopardizes the integrity of the product. And what I wanted, I said, look, we've got love in our name. And what we're going to do is offer the customer what it is that they want. And we're going to make that product in that medium, the best that we can. And so that's the approach that we took. I,
0: I think that you, you've put your passion and your heart behind every part of this business for sure. And not oh, af- yeah. And, and you're not afraid to make the difficult decision and innovation though, is a huge part of your brand though. I mean, everything it I've is. been hearing for the past 30 plus minutes is really all about putting your passion, but putting innovation behind it and not afraid to try.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the mistakes I made um, in the past few years is making the food menu too complicated. And so, you know, I'm going through the process right now with our ops team to look, let's find what products the customers are really buying Mm -hmm. and let's simplify this. So it's, they don't get deer in the headlights when they go to the menu, trying to pick between 25 different food items. Right. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's a constant process of improving and trying to figure out what does the customer want? What does our new customer want? What is the person who's never walked in there? How are we going to make them feel as comfortable as possible when they walk in there? You know, it's certainly not by giving them a highbrow experience and looking at them in disgust when they ask where the cream and sugar is. Mm -hmm. We want them to come to the to the to the POS system and ask them, what is it that you typically drink at home if you're looking for a bag of beans? And, you know, if they say, you know, I drink some General Mills dark roast coffee at home, then that's what we start with. We'll say, okay, well, that's good to know. Then I think the best coffee for you would be, you know, our African skies. I think that's a good a good pairing. There's you don't have to be a coffee connoisseur to come into just love. What I want is for you to come in and be comfortable. Pivotal point for me and, and figuring this out was I was reading reviews of other coffee shops in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. And I was curious. I, my favorite shop outside of just love. I was curious about their reviews. I, I wanted to see what they were doing. Right. Like, cause they're very successful. They do a good job. and, I, I look up to to the owner that owns that shop, and I wanted to know what they were doing. Well, I came across a bad review, and the bad review was simply this. This is my favorite coffee shop, and my parents and my grandparents were in town, and I wanted to take them to my favorite coffee shop. And when they got there, they didn't know what to order, and there was nothing there that was familiar to them. And that's when it hit me. You know what? The, thing that I need to focus on is making sure there is something for everybody. So regardless of whether you're a six-year-old kid coming in with your mom and dad or you're a retiree or whatever, you're a stay-at-home mom, I want there to be something for you. And that's how we've built the menu. Uh, we really have tried to make it to where... A multi-generational family can walk into a Just Love Coffee Cafe and there be something for everybody. From a business standpoint, of course, I want as much of the market as I can get. But more importantly, I just want the customer to feel comfortable Mm -hmm. and I want them to be excited to see there's something on the menu that they want.
0: But, and isn't it true at the same time that as an entrepreneur though, we can get like in our head of trying to make something so complicated. We're trying to be well, everything to everybody, but in a very complicated way. And you took really, you simplified what essentially any guest, any customer would want.
1: Yeah. and, And to the simplification point, Man, I went to Vegas last year and went to In-N-Out Burger, and man, that thing is brilliant. Right. It is. I mean, they sell one thing. Mm-hmm. They sell one thing. Right. And, and with that one thing, they probably have what six items on the menu, and it you literally are there's a line out the door. You're in and out in a matter of ten minutes.
0: Right. And the drive-through it doesn't matter what time of day or night that drive-through yeah. is is busy.
1: Yeah. So I was, I was there just mesmerized, just looking behind the counter and looking at this processes that this company has created. And, and there are a number of concepts like that. And, um, you know, they do it really, really well. They know their customer base and they're serving it. And I think that's really important for any concept is you have to know who your customer is. Right. Without, without that, you're just got a blindfold on and you're, you know, throwing things at the wall, seeing what's going to stick.
0: Yes. Well, I, you you're somebody who is not afraid to innovate and make changes. Obviously, this is something that's been like the focus, uh, focal point of the conversation we've had. I'm just curious to to ask you what is next for Just Love.
1: Yeah, so the the next thing that I'm working on is more of a um, an in and out type of experience. Um, it's it's not your traditional Just Love coffee cafe. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it. Okay, but it's going to be a concept where the focus is giving the customer who wants to get inside and out with their product as quickly as possible right now we're lifestyle brand you know our customers come in and enjoy one two hours at the table and you know it it really is that type of brand but that is not what everybody wants what i'm looking at is a hybrid model and then a full-on you know fast delivery model,
0: get in, get out kind of thing,
1: get in and get out. So uh, we're just in the research process of that. Um, You know, the other thing I'm looking at is with this express model is, um, you know, getting the economics uh, more efficient with the build out, with the number of people it takes to run it. the, The fact that there would not be a kitchen in this model, it would just be a room that held dry stock and refrigeration. And everything's done in front of house, so that those are the types of things I'm, I'm looking at and and running performance on and trying to see what the P and L would look like with a concept like that.
0: It's gonna be interesting. I know that you you're gonna come up with something fantastic for sure. Oh,
1: thank you. <laughs> I know it.
0: You are uh, you definitely you get ideas, you implement them, and you've you've had incredible success in really a short time. So I'm gonna keep my eye on you.
1: Well, thank you. It, I just have to say that. You know, I'm the one that came up with the idea of Just Love, but I am not the one that built it to where it is today. I have a team of people around me that work tirelessly to have created uh, the brand that it is. So I give kudos and props to all my home office staff that they are the ones that are really driving this thing.
0: They always are. What's your role today now, then? Obviously, it's shifted from the very beginning. Yeah, from the there? very
1: beginning, I was doing everything. Of and course. Now, yeah, um, I really am focused on uh, culture. I'm focused on um, the culture internally mm-hmm. and externally. Uh, bring you know all of our franchisees um, who come to Discovery Day, spend the day with me, and I want to get to know who they are and let them know who we are. You know, when I sit with a franchisee who's lo- or potential franchisee who's looking at multiple concepts. Uh, I want to make sure that they understand that I am not selling to you. This day is about me giving you as much information as I can for you to make an educated decision to make sure that we're a good fit for you. And then I, in turn, need to make sure that we're a good, good fit for, for the franchisees. So I am really focused on culture. I'm focused on the people that work at home office. I'm wor- I'm focused on the relationships with the franchisees. Um, and I'm also focused on on big, big idea, big concept ideas like the like the one I just discussed. Yeah. Let's shift
0: gears and talk about your franchise owners, though. Who is your ideal franchise owner? What traits do they need to be successful?
1: That mindset as far as a business, uh, just a general business um, acumen is just mindset. They don't necessarily have to have had a uh, business owning experience, but they have to have that. Uh, mentality that I'm going to go out and get it. Uh, I'm not going to um, take out an ad in the paper and wait for the check to come in the mail. I'm looking for people who are going to be in the store. They know their customers. They're out on the street, spreading the word you can have an average location with a great operator and you have a great store and you can have a great location with a poor operator and you're going to have a poor store. So, you know, I have exception to the term location, 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 because I would say it's operator operator location. I mean, it's just, it's so important that, um, the person who is, uh, who owns that store is on offense, mm-hmm. not on defense. They are the ones that are, Uh, making sure that their labor is under control and their costs are under control and that they're, they're getting the word out about their store and the service is high, the food is delivered hot. Um, Those, those types of owners are going to be successful. Now, you know, with all that is founded on the, the basis of having a high culture. So not only do they have to have that, but without the, the high culture, none of that will work. So they need to have good, relationships with their staff. They need to treat their staff according to the core values of the company. They need to go out and work with nonprofits and have events with nonprofits and do some gift backs. Uh, You know, it's important for me that um, these franchise owners have a heart for something other than business. Um, It's great that you do have a heart for business. I do as well but I also want them to have a heart for something that gives back and it doesn't have to be adoption. You know, that's, that, that was my passion and I don't expect anybody to, you know, adapt to my passion. So if it's elderly care or homelessness or whatever, I want the franchise owner to have something that they're passionate about that gives back. So it's, it's, it's kind of a multifaceted type of characteristics of a franchisee that, that, will be successful within the just love system specifically
0: and now that you've been doing this for five years what would you say has been your biggest surprise in franchising
1: i think the biggest surprise is how difficult it is to get a store open from the time they find the location like how many systems and processes have to be in place and how you have to have the right vendor partners, Uh because I have gone through this with the wrong vendor partners. And it has it it was a nightmare. So the biggest surprise to me was, you know, it's not just they sign on the dotted line, you get your franchise fee and pick a location and then, you know, do the build out and open your doors. Uh You know, no, no, there, you know, we literally have a list of 175 items that have to be completed from the time that they signed the franchise agreement to the time that they open their doors.
0: Okay, and what about like since COVID has location selection, has that changed since COVID? It,
1: the market has changed for sure. And uh, businesses are looking for more um, locations with drive-through compatibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and franchisees are looking for locations with drive-through compatibility. So it takes a lot longer to find a location when you are looking for a drive-through option. Um, so that's been one thing you know, we have a few freestanding buildings that uh, prior to probably two years ago, we had no experience with. And, you know, when you start with dirt, it takes a long time, <laughs> you know?
0: Right. Right.
1: So it, it's a whole lot quicker to get a second gen location going than it is to start from the ground up.
0: I bet. So, and what about your vision for like, how big is big with just love? How many number of I you know. mean, or have you given it some, I, don't
1: thought? Know. I, I you know, I, I, Honestly, I don't, I, I do have like year, one year, two year, five year plans, mm-hmm. you know, in five years, I, I would really like us, you know, to be in that 250 to 350 range as with any business, the the more you scale up, the, the more you're able to do it in a shorter amount of time. Also, when you have a concept that's proven, you get more opportunities brought to your feet. You know, no one who is successful in big concepts is going to approach a fledgling concept and say, "Hey, I want to build 100 units." So, I do see there are opportunities that will come in the future uh, as we grow and the concept continues to be proven that. Um, you know, we, we, we can hit that three, three fifty mark in five years.
0: I don't see any reason why you're not going to hit it. The pace you're going, man, you, you're on the yeah, right track. You. It sounds like, yeah, it's obviously it's going to take more infrastructure. Right. And which, as we know, the challenge of keeping the culture of your team becomes a greater challenge with the more people. But I think you're, on the, I think you're on the right track. I, I, I don't have any concerns for you, man. I know you're going to be just yeah. right.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Well, good people, good people. So hopefully totally. that will continue. Yeah. Yeah.
0: We also know speaking culturally about growing the brand, more franchisees, that becomes even a greater challenge as the numbers get bigger because we know that your franchise base is going to grow faster than the number of corporate employees. Tell me about uh, what advice would you give to people who are considering joining Just Love as a franchise owner?
1: Yeah, my my advice is to do as much research as you can to um, talk to Eric Wheeler, who is our he's our representative that can really uh, answer the types of questions that a lot of prospective owners want answers to. There there is a process. And, you know, at any point in that process, either one of us could say, you know what, this is not a good fit the only way you're really going to get to know whether or not just love is a good fit for you is to reach out to Eric and he is Johnny on the spot, man. If you contact him, don't just to know you're getting a call back like <laughs> immediately, but go on the website. Um, And look, you know, watch the videos, read the content, do, you know, Google me and see what you find out about me, you know, see if you can see, see what you find about the owner, see what you find out about the people who are in the company, you know, do your research and, and then start talking to our team. And, um, you know, I have every confidence in the world that what I've said today uh, will be validated by the people that you talk to.
0: For sure. If uh, someone's interested in learning more about Just Love as a franchise opportunity, how can they get more info?
1: Yeah, you can uh, go to, we have two websites um, justlovecoffee.com. That is the uh, original site. And then you can also go to justlovecoffeecafe.com to look at uh, franchise information.
0: Cool. Well, Rob, one last thing. So I finish every episode with the tip jar. So there are aspiring entrepreneurs out there that want to franchise their concept. What's something, uh, a piece of advice you give to them?
1: Uh, my piece of advice is to make sure you have systems and processes in place before you even go down that road. Um, and then once you do go down that road, um, take it slow, don't grow too fast and you know make sure that you are staffed. Uh, appropriately for the number of stores that you anticipate opening within the next year to two years.
0: Great. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank
0: you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host, Frank Fiume, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its hosts do not offer professional advice or endorsements, and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.